May 31st, 1977. Dear Harvey, here is the project I told Jamie about on the telephone. The job is to model a wax figure on the armature provided. That figure is the character Darth Vader from the motion picture Star Wars. If you can, it would be good to see the movie. Make a close representation of Darth Vader using the pictorial material we are sending. This character is evil personified. He is a man wearing a mask that is like a gas mask combined with armor. Use the way sketch as a guide to his costume. Fill out the details from the other pictures. Darth Vader is a sinister and evil character. The product size is intended to be four and one quarter inches tall. Your wax model will be 4% greater than product at 4.42 inches. Your character is a larger than average character, so the relationship to the figure drawing and the other figures is an odd one. The figure stands weight balanced on both feet. His arms are bent slightly at the elbows. His right arm will contain an armature in the lower arm. That armature will be sent as soon as possible. The right hand will be holding a saber or sword. The figure is due here in Cincinnati, July 10th, 1977. We'd like it July 3rd if possible, even sooner. Naturally, the work is all confidential and shouldn't be discussed with non-Kenner people. That was a portion of the letter John Gardner, head of Kenner's sculpting department, sent to his old friend Harvey Albach. Albach, a former sculptor for Mattel, was contracted by Gardner to produce the villain for a children's toy based on the sci-fi fantasy film that had stunned audiences only a week earlier. Using the key sketch that was included, along with Gardner's note and the sculpting wax provided by Kenner, Olback went to work on creating the first Darth Vader action figure. He spent a total of 80 hours sculpting Vader, basing his model on the front and side view drawings, on the key sketch, and on visuals he recalled from the film. The Darth Vader was one of the first eight figures to be sculpted for the Star Wars line. It had become one of the most iconic toys ever created, and Kenner sold millions of plastic 4-inch Darth Vaders during the eight years that vintage Star Wars figures ruled toy stores. The Collecting Prototype series is back for Season 3. This is the story of wax and how it was used to ignite the imaginations of children everywhere. This is a look at Star Wars wax sculpts and why they're so important to toy history, so desired by collectors, and so valuable. This is a deeper dive into the prototype process. This is where it all began for Star Wars fans. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. Yes, master. Yeah. Right. 
stand and fight. The more you tighten your grip, darling, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. The Force will be with you. Always. So why are the Kenner Star Wars wax sculpts so important, so coveted, and so valuable? A wax sculpting commonly known among collectors as a sculpt is the first true three-dimensional example of an action figure, on its way to becoming a toy. And when it comes to toys, it doesn't get more iconic and more beloved than Kenner Star Wars figures. The wax sculpt is the piece on which every figure to come out of the factory is based. Whether we played with figures as children or collected them as adults, that original wax encapsulates the form and essence of the character and the figure. The wax sculpt also exhibits the most detail and is closest to the sculptor's original intent, as many of the details were lost the further the figure progressed during the pre-production process. Wax sculpts are truly works of art. Each one was handcrafted by a true artist, who was not only able to use the 3D medium to create a tiny example of a character, creature, or droid, but incorporated elements of design and playability into the sculpture. And during the Star Wars action figure run, beginning with 1977's first 12 figures and ending with 1985's releases of the Power of the Force and the Droids and Ewoks series, Kenner sculptors created more than 100 unique action figures. And because many different artists worked on the line, the figures were far from uniform in their appearances. In a line that could have been creatively hampered by the static five points of articulation design in which the rigid figure could turn its head and move its four limbs, the sculptors added touches that made the figures feel wholly real to children. From the slight lean added to characters like Luke Hoth and the Bespin security guards to make them more human, or the scaly and strange alien features of a man man one of the largest creatures produced, to make it believable to kids that the creature came from another galaxy. And with textures like the fur patterning on Logray and the Ewoks from Return of the Jedi and the Dulok villains from the Ewoks cartoon, or the hard and smooth metallic surfaces of many of the droids that interacted with our heroes and villains, the sculptors captured what we witnessed on screen. I would even argue that the Mona Lisa-style smirk of the diminutive Yoda figure added to the mysterious and wise character we met on the planet of Dagobah. With these toys in their possession, children all over the world were able to sink their imaginations to these tangible representations of on-screen characters for a fulfilling play experience, and the sculptors made that possible. So owning the wax sculpt of the original Darth Vader would be like owning the original artwork for the cover of Superman's first appearance, Action Comics No. 1, hand-drawn by Joe Shuster. After all, the penciled cover would be the earliest realized piece from which every Action Comics number 1 cover was printed. When hunting rare items, many of the top collectors aim to get as close as they can to the designer's original idea. And when it comes to 3D representations of Star Wars toys, there's nothing more important or more iconic than those wax sculpts.
the process. As I mentioned earlier, the wax sculpt is the first three-dimensional model of the character in figure form. A sculptor is given a series of sketches and blueprints that address the design and look of the figure from multiple angles. The sculptor is then tasked with turning a collection of two-dimensional information into an action figure, one that adheres to specifications like the size of the figure and how it will move, as well as how it compares to others within the line. When it came to sculpting action figures, there was a general way it was done. I'm going to discuss that a bit here, but please understand, each artist did it in the way that best suited them. Some skipped the early steps, while others focused more on these early ones, adding more detail initially. For many artists, though, the path to the wax sculpt often began with clay. Sculptors would use an oil-based clay to create what is known as a clay rough. This clay rough was like a 3D rough draft of an idea, and it captured the overall shape of the action figure. The details would be added eventually, in a later step, once the artist was ready to begin sculpting using wax. Once ready to create the clay rough, the sculptor would begin with the torso. A small brass armature, known as a buck, would serve as the frame for the interior of the torso, like an action figure skeleton, and the sculptor would add clay around it, molding it to form the body. The buck would have a hole on each side of the shoulders and possibly around the lower section to allow for the eventual connection of the limbs. Having a piece of metal strengthen the internal structure of the clay, keeping it intact as the sculptor worked on it and eventually used it to create the wax sculpt. Once the clay rough was created and the sculptor added as much detail into the sculpt, it was used to produce a plaster mold. Imagine a block of plaster containing the sculpt, or various parts of the sculpt inside, splitting it down the middle, creating a front and a back. Then, using a carving wax that was created for sculpting purposes, often in-house, the wax would be poured into the empty cavity of each part, creating the first wax example of that figure. The buck that was used as the frame would be removed from the clay rough, and installed into the wax sculpt during the pouring process. Due to their delicate nature and the fact that they were used to transition the sculptor to a wax example, very few clay roughs survived. Once the initial wax cast was poured and created from the mold, the sculptor would then use it to further modify the figure's design and would continue to add detail to the sculpt. The various pieces of the figure that had been cast separately from the molds, like the torso, head, and limbs, would then be attached using small plastic discs. The discs would be embedded into the wax against the holes where the limbs would connect, with the holes in the discs lining up with the holes in the buck. Another set of small discs would be added to the interiors of the arms and legs, and a thin metal or plastic rod would be used to connect them to the torso. The head would connect to the top of the torso by means of a rod as well. And some wax sculpts use cone-shaped discs in place of a buck. The small ends of the discs line up end-to-end -end inside of the torso, and the limbs are pinned to the torso through the large ends. This helps to support the limbs at the joints and to preserve the structural integrity of the sculpt. To clarify though, some sculptors would create a clay rough first before transitioning to wax. 
Others would skip the clay rough stage and would start working on their figure using wax. For each artist, it all came down to their individual approach, and as long as the sculpt they produced furthered the progression of the toy from a sculpt to a hard copy in a timely and efficient manner, they were able to use the sculpting method they preferred. Designing in detail. At this point, the sculptor would use a series of tools to not only shape the figure, but to create the details in the wax sculpt. We've seen a number of these tools for sale over the years, either from collectors who previously purchased items from former Kenner employees, or from the employees themselves. Here to speak about the various types of tools used is my friend and co-author of the book, Engineering an Empire, Stephen Ward. So, Stephen, you have some extensive knowledge of the Kenner process, uh, sculpting, and uh, as well as uh, the people who had worked on it. You've spoken to them before, uh, and you are a sculptor yourself. You've had a sculpting experience. So, what kind of tools were used uh, by these sculptors who created the toys in the 70s and 80s? So, you have you have kind of a, a large... Um, kind of a large spectrum of tools, but there are a couple of things that are um, going to be pretty common between every, everyone. So you had what's called a hot waxer, a wax pen. Um, commonly it was a specific brand um, that Kenner uh, folks like to use, uh, a brand called Dick L's. And what a hot waxer is, you have a controller that is connected to, you know, a, a pen like object. You've got some insulation around it where you would be, be holding it and it has a wax tip. It is, it is, um, you know, an, an electrified, um, it's, it's an electrified device. Uh, your controller is going to be able to change the amount of heat that you're applying to it. Um, and, you know, much like kind of like a wood burning tool, because it is electrified, it's going to be sending that current through that and it's going to be heating up the wax tip in order to either carve off, you know, wax very softly and easily. Or in a lot of cases, it was used as part of an additive process. You're working on bulking up, uh, you know, the muscles in an arm, you know, you're, you're taking uh, wax using your hot waxer and adding it. You know, working it into the existing piece, you know, and it's obviously drying rather quickly as it's, it's uh, you know, uh, beeswax combination and, um, you know, therefore increasing the size of, of whatever you're working on. You also have a variety of dental tools, not too dissimilar from the actual dental tools that you'd see at your at your local dentist. A lot of those got modified by these guys, and that's kind of one of the, the common features that I was, was mentioning is sculptors, you know, by nature, you know, they're, you know, they're artists. In this case, they're commercial artists, but everybody has their own very specific way of working the things that they really like and certain things that they don't. And so one of the easiest ways that I found when I needed to, to make a, a tool for – or I needed a tool, rather – for something specific or a tool that I had just didn't really fit my particular 
way of working, my particular style, make it yourself. And these guys did that. They would, uh, they would carve and lathe and machine. And in some cases even have guys down at the Kenner model shop, uh, in the sub basement, help them, you know, modify handles, uh, machine and lathe handles out of various plastics and metals and other materials to let them, uh, sculpt in a way that was more conducive to, um, kind of their, um, to their style or, or in some cases just really like it had to do a lot with sometimes physiology, the way that people like to, to hold things is very specific. Um, and they would always try to do their best to help them accommodate that. But yeah, uh, a hot waxer, dental type tools for, for carving. Um, and then certain, um, certain, you know, homemade for lack of a better word tools, uh, for certain purposes, obviously there's, there's other things you'd be, you'd be, uh, using sanding sticks and sandpaper, uh, and other types of, of elements to get certain finishes and to clean certain things up. Um, but, but the hot waxer and the dental type tools, and then just kind of homemade tools were, um, were definitely a good enough arsenal for, uh, for most of these guys. What was the strangest tool that you've ever come across? The strangest tool I've ever come across is probably, probably there's, um, there's a modified, there's a modified dental tool that I have that came from a Kenner sculptor. And he remembered having the folks down in the model shop modify a piece of, uh, kind of green, almost uh, tubular, type plastic and embedding, uh, some very sharp hooked, um, curved dental tool pieces, uh, at, at either end, each facing in the opposite direction. Um, I still, uh, am fortunate enough to have that tool today. It's still covered in, um, covered in this particular wax that he liked to work with. Um, honestly, it, it stands out really because it's, uh, because it's kind of a, the handle itself is a rather bright green color. Most of the um, most of the tools that you see, especially like dental tools, they're uh, there's some shade of a you know a silver or a gray or you know a black. They're you know really old and worn and oxidized. Um, and so this very bright green one that I can only describe as a very '70s green. Uh, really stands out amongst, you know, a sea of similar sculpting tools that, that I've seen and that I have myself to this day. So that particular tool, that little, that very seventies green handled tool, along with, um, some of the other ones that I have sitting in front of me. So those all belong to a guy named Rick Hughes and Rick, uh, Rick worked for Kenner for a number of years. Um, he'd sculpted Boba Fett. Uh, Obi-Wan, Chewbacca, uh, the three and three quarter stuff among many of the other things that he's worked on. Um, and so it's really neat because he remembered very specifically certain tools that he had, certain sets that were, were used. And so some of the ones that, that I have, uh, in my own collection were ones that he had during that era that he remembered very specifically were used for certain things, uh, with, you know, some of the doll heads that he was working on. And in some cases, some of the action figure parts, including Star Wars, that he was working on. So it's 
it's neat to look at these and while they are very uh, utilitarian, kind of you know, industrial-looking objects, um, it's neat to think about the things that they very specifically help create. So why were these pieces sculpted in wax? In order to eventually create the steel molds that would produce every action figure sold at retail, a more durable model of the sculpt would be needed. But sculptors first needed to work with a material that would be easy to manipulate and would allow them to craft intricate detail. Wax by nature is both additive and subtractive. You can carve into it to remove some of the wax, and you can heat it up and connect additional wax to a sculpt. If you make a mistake or if you need to update an aspect of the model, wax affords you the ability to make any changes without having to start from the beginning. To borrow a phrase from Stephen, wax is simply the most forgiving medium. At room temperature, the sculpt is delicate, but strong enough to withstand the creation of a silicone mold based on it. And making a silicon mold is the next step on the way to producing the resin hard copy, which would eventually be traced by a pantograph machine. Based on the data provided by the pantograph, a milling machine would then carve the original sculpt's likeness into the steel mold. And the steel mold would produce the figures we collect today. Sculpted Accessories Often, removable accessories that the characters wore were sculpted in wax after the initial figure was sculpted. In the case of the Ewoks from 1983's Return of the Jedi and 1985's Power of the Force toy line, additional items would need to be designed that would complement the sculpt. Chief Chirpa's cowl, which was eventually produced in a rubber-like plastic, had to be crafted for a perfect fit around the figure's head. The Ewok Medicine Man Logre not only came with a headdress through which his ears protruded, but he also wore a removable satchel that hung from his shoulder across his body. Rather than design these additional pieces into the sculpt, they were crafted alongside the sculpt using a separate casting. A crude plaster model was made from a rough mold of Logre's torso and head and became the mannequin on which Logre's hat was sculpted. Using wax, the sculptor created the headdress around the plaster model, with its bird-like skull at the top, adorned with braids and bones and a plume of feathers. The wax headdress was then used to create a cavity mold from which the resin hard copy example would be cast. The sculptor would also make the satchel in a similar manner, draping a purse-like bag with the strap out of wax across a separate hard copy of Logray in order to get the proper sizing of the accessory. And in crafting Logray's staff to fit the figure's hand, much care was put into capturing the right fit. The early rough of the staff was fashioned out of wood, and wax was added to form the basic shape of the top of the staff. In the same way, a clay rough would lead to a wax sculpt of a figure, the wood and wax conceptual model of the staff would produce the final wax, and details like the staff's feathers would be added during this step. 
In creating a cow for Chief Chirpa, Ramba, and Wicket, the figure would be sculpted, and a hard copy would be made from the silicon mold produced from the wax sculpt. The cow would then be molded around the hard copy's head in wax, and would eventually lead to the rubbery cowls seen on the Endor heroes in collections everywhere. Even as a child, I was impressed by how nicely the cowls and headdresses fit on the Ewoks, and how perfectly the accessories fit in their hands. And as a collector, learning that these items and figures were made by hand and in concert with one another really helped me to appreciate them as works of art, by true artists of their craft. One hundred and four percent. If you measure the wax sculpt of a Star Wars three and three quarter inch action figure against its production figure counterpart, you'd notice a slight difference in size. For example, the Boba Fett sculpt would be about four percent larger than the painted plastic one currently sitting in your collection. If the production Boba Fett is supposed to be an exact copy of the sculpt and is based on the sculpt, wouldn't it make more sense that the two should be the same size? Star Wars action figures were sculpted slightly larger to compensate for the shrinkage that occurs further along in the process, at the step in which the plastic examples of the figures are produced. Here is a very quick overview of the process. In wax, the figure is sculpted at 104%. Again, 4% larger than what the final figure would be. The figure is not just 4% taller, but every part of it is 4% larger overall. Next, the wax sculpt is used to create a resin hard copy. Since this resin hard copy will be cast directly from the mold created by the wax sculpt, the hard copy will also be 4% larger. So in that step, the size of the figure does not change. The purpose of the hard copy is to create a steel mold which will produce all of the plastic versions of the figures that will be sold at retail. In the steel mold, molten plastic is injected at a very high pressure, and once the newly created plastic figure cools in the mold, that plastic shrinks a tiny bit. How much does it shrink? About 4%. So to do the quick math, 104% for the wax sculpt, minus the 4% shrinkage to the plastic figure in the steel mold, leaves us with a figure at 100%, which translates to the intended size by the designers at Kenner. Two-ups. Out of the 92 standard figures produced by Kenner for the vintage Star Wars line, it is believed that all of them but two figures were sculpted at 104%, or what we would call a one-to-one scale, because the difference in size is such a small percentage. However, two Star Wars figures from the film were sculpted at twice their intended size, or slightly larger than 200%. Can you guess which two they are? I'll give you a few hints. They're both droids with thin limbs. They each have numbers as part of their names. One was from Return of the Jedi, 
and the other was a power of the force release. The answers? The white torture droid 8D8 was the Jedi figure, and the power of the force droid was 8D8's supervisor at Jabba's palace, EV-99. So why were 8D8 and EV-99 each sculpted as a two-up, or at a ratio that was twice the size of the intended result? The answer to that is in the droid's designs. 8D8 and EV-99 possessed very thin limbs, and their legs were similar in which the upper part consisted of slender, rod-like pistons, which would have been very hard to capture detail in a one-to-one scale sculpt. By sculpting them as two-ups, the Kenner sculptors were able to add detail to their tiny frames, making them look more like their on-screen counterparts. Four-ups. In the summer of 1982, Kenner released the Star Wars Micro Collection, a series of miniature figures, playsets, and vehicles. The figures released were painted metal figurines in action poses and with no articulation. Most of the figures in the Micro Collection line stood at just over an inch tall. For a sculptor, capturing an accurate likeness or any sort of detail at that scale would have been incredibly tough. For that reason, the micro figures were sculpted at four times the intended size of the figure, which is known as a four-up. Four-ups gave the sculptor the ability to add in elements like wrinkles into Han Solo's shirt and pants, accurate armor details on Boba Fett and Darth Vader, and tufts of fur into the Hoth Wampa. While the figures were sculpted in wax, some of the parts to be included on the figures were produced in other materials and were added to the sculpt. For the Hoth playsets, multiple snowtrooper figures were created in different poses. Since the helmets and portions of their armor were virtually the same for each trooper, a standard series of molds were created containing those parts. The parts were then cast in resin from the molds and were added to each uniquely posed snowtrooper wax sculpt. Some parts, like Han's stormtrooper blaster, were created through a process called patterning. An object that requires a lot of detail and has straight or rigid lines would be crafted first in wood. The wood pattern of Han's blaster would lead to the creation of a plastic example, which would be incorporated into the final wax sculpt of the figure. Parting Lines If you've ever seen a sculpt in person or in photos, you may have noticed a common trait held by many of them. For as beautiful and as detailed as the sculpts appear, they usually have a single pencil line mark running down the sides of the figures. The line will begin on one side at the head, traveling along the arm and torso, and then traveling down the leg to the character's foot. This line will be repeated on the other side as well. The pencil markings are called parting lines. Parting lines were added to the final wax sculpt in order to demonstrate where the split would occur in the next step, producing a silicone mold based on the sculpt. Think of a parting line as a seam which bisects each body part of a figure. And the molds that would be handmade from casting the final wax would need two separate halves to make each body part. 
Describing the sculpting process, former Kenner Products sculptor Nikolai Klimazewski highlighted the challenge of not only capturing a character's likeness accurately in wax, but making sure the figure's design met the manufacturing needs as well. As a sculptor, he had to be conscious of where that parting line would be and would have to adjust any detail that would conflict with it. Parting lines were also important further into the process as well. The lines established on the wax sculpt would also translate in creating the division in the steel molds that eventually produced the plastic production figures. In planning this episode, I tried to think of a few questions you may have when it comes to wax sculpts. Here's what I came up with. First, were any Star Wars figures not sculpted in wax? I will be exploring the answer to this in a future episode, but some Star Wars characters like the Death Squad Commander and Leia Hoth were sculpted in acetate, a hard and heavy plastic-like material. This was done by one person in particular, a former model kit sculptor named Bill Lemon. Bill's work was admired by his fellow sculptors, as sculpting in acetate was incredibly difficult and allowed no room for error. Second question, is it possible that more than one sculpt could exist for a figure? It's very possible, and a few have actually turned up. For example, there is an alternate sculpt Luke Jedi. And for a figure like Kia Mole from the Droids line, some conceptual wax sculpts were discovered. In the case of Han and Carbonite from The Power of the Force, the figure went through a series of changes, with each iteration being reworked on a separate wax cast. So while each wax version may be unique, however, there is really only one final wax sculpt that is directly responsible for the action figure sold at retail. Question 3. Do any wax sculpts exist for unproduced Kenner Star Wars action figures? I love this question, and I'm happy to say the answer is yes. For the three and three quarter inch line, the wax sculpt for Gargan, this six-breasted dancer from Jabba's Palace, currently resides in a private collection. When it comes to the micro collection, many figure sculpts from the unproduced playsets have been found, including the R2-D2 and Luke and Yoda from the Dagobah set, the Emperor Wax from the second Death Star, and Jabba the Hutt from Jabba's Throne Room. And the final question, do any wax sculpts ever come up for sale to the public? And what is the value of a vintage Star Wars sculpt? Personally, I cannot remember a time over the past decade in which a Star Wars action figure sculpt has been offered to the public. Most are locked away in private collections, or are possibly still in the hands of former Kenner employees. And it is rumored that a certain marvelous collector has been adding wax sculpts to his personal collection over the years, and owns a pretty extensive run. If a sculpt were to come up for sale at an auction or in a setting in which collectors like you and I would have a chance to own it, what would it sell for? Understanding a sculpt's importance within our hobby, as well as to the history of Star Wars and Star Wars toys, it's safe to assume that the low end would be somewhere in the 100,000 to 200,000 range for a tertiary character, 
and closer to the 300,000 to 500,000 range for a secondary character. For iconic characters like Darth Vader and Boba Fett, it would be safe to assume that they would each attract a lot of publicity and attention, and would likely fetch over a million dollars. And in this market, where rarer collectibles have veered into long-term investment territory, I wouldn't be surprised if these one-of-a-kind items sold for millions of dollars each. The wax sculpts associated with the first Star Wars film, and especially the first 12 figures released, will always carry a premium. After all, they were the ones that started the Star Wars toy craze and ushered in the era of the action figure around the world. But it's safe to say that any sculpt would be the jaw-dropping centerpiece of any collection. So that is a brief overview of Star Wars wax sculpts, their purpose in the production of an action figure, why the majority of the figures were sculpted in wax, and why they're coveted by collectors today. This episode would not have been possible without some of the essential resources on Star Wars collecting, and were produced by those whom I am fortunate to call friends. My thanks to Chris Dragulius and Ron Salvatore for their incredible and insightful articles published on the collecting website, the Star Wars Collector's Archive, found at the SWCA.com. Thank you to Duncan Jenkins and Gus Lopez for the work they did on the original Kenner Arab Prototype Bible, Gus and Duncan's Guide to Star Wars Prototypes. Whether you collect vintage prototypes or just like learning about them and seeing photos of some incredibly historic pieces, this book is a must-own for any collector. Thank you to the legendary Mr. Klimko, Nikolai Klimazuski, for a detailed description of the sculpting process on his website, found at klimko.artspan.com. K-L-I-M-K-O dot artspan dot com. Thank you also to the fantastic trio of Gary Borbage, Matt George, and Stephen Ward for their work on the book Engineering an Empire, which is a fascinating look at the Kenner employees and contract workers responsible for creating toys within the Star Wars line. And an extra special thank you to Stephen for taking the time to chat with me for this episode. I'm really excited to continue the Collecting Prototype series throughout the year, and we'll be producing episodes that will explore the process in how the toys and collectibles we love were made. I have some special surprises for you along the way. Here's to sharing knowledge about our hobby with our fellow friends and collectors, and here's to the continuing pursuit for Star Wars action figure wax sculpts. (laughs) 